Do you ever find yourself lost for words? I find that it's me almost every day. There's something I want to say. There's a way I want to say it. And I know there's words that express it perfectly. And yet, they're just on the tip of my tongue and can't get out. That, that interaction between my brain and my mouth, being able to articulate what I can sense or feel or, or imagine just gets blocked somewhere. Uh, you, I'm sure you know the experience in different ways. We all have it, don't we? Uh, not being able to say what we want. Lost for words. And I think often, often we feel like this as Christians when it comes to explaining God to people. When it comes to talking about Jesus, sometimes we feel like oh, the, the right way to express it it just doesn't come at the right time. There's an opportunity and we can see and someone's just said something that could be the perfect segue into talking about the great hope that we have in Jesus. And often just, just, just the right way to phrase it just doesn't come. We feel like it's such a struggle. We're lost for words. And sometimes that's because of our, our anxiety about we should only speak it when we've got the exact right way to do it, the, the formula, and we, we, we feel worried about saying the wrong thing that could give the wrong impression or that could actually undermine our attempts to help someone see Jesus more clearly, might offend them and drive them further off. Sometimes it's, we're, we're just scared about speaking at all worried that what kind of reaction will we get but there is a point in which we're talking about the biggest story in the universe the most important person that ever lived there's a there's a reality that at one level words aren't enough are they there is a point where words fail to capture well if you find yourself in that circumstance Spare a thought for the Apostle John. He got taken while he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. He got taken in the spirit to be present in the throne room of God. And then he tried to write it down so we could understand his experience. The very nature of that dynamic is that he's having this spiritual experience, a revelation of the throne room of God. To then try and articulate that simply and clearly, it's beyond words, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's, he's not going to be able to do justice in a couple of paragraphs to what that experience was like. Uh, but that's what we have as we come to Revelation chapter 4 today. We are, we are working through Revelation 4 and 5 in this season of Advent and focusing on the throne room of God as we celebrate Advent, the coming of God the Son to earth. Giving us a bit of it, this context to help us understand Jesus coming better. But as we do it, we have to keep in mind that 
his words aren't going to be able to do it justice. So with that in the back of your mind, let's turn now to Revelation 4. We're going to read, I'm actually going to read 1 to 8, verses 1 to 8. After this I looked, John writes, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. We'll leave the rest of chapter 8, uh, verse 8 for the next week. But do you get the image? It's... it's it's, it's obviously very impressive, isn't it? It's a wow moment for John. He's, he's present in the spirit. Notice he's not just having a dream about something that he's disconnected from. He is there. He's taken in the spirit to be present without his body. But he is impressed with this scene. There's a door standing open and as he looks through, what does he see? The very throne of God. There's a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it and he doesn't doesn't waste time trying to describe what the one sitting on the throne looks like in great detail, does he? Because you'd imagine that's, that's completely beyond him. Uh, whether he could see him at all uh, in terms of just being overwhelmed with the, the sheer gloriousness. But he describes him as having the appearance of jasper and ruby, uh, which are, well, jasper is a semi-precious stone and it comes in lots of colours and when polished it looks very nice and ruby... We've mostly heard of rubies, uh, the very precious red-coloured gemstone. What does it mean that the one sitting on the throne had the appearance of these? Well, remember, he's trying to describe in the best words he can. Is it because they're shiny and these are kind of polished stones? 
colorful brightness? It's vivid. Is it trying to get at the value? The one who sits on the throne looks like looks like it's a very valuable person. We don't know exactly. Um, these are some of the images that they, these stones conjure up, aren't they? But he doesn't he doesn't spend lots of time trying to nut it out and actually get you to comprehend the incomprehensible. But he goes on and he, he he speaks to things that are a bit more detailed around the throne, things that are happening there. Because verse four, uh, verse three, around a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. This colourful, it's projection of light, anyhow, showing different tones or different colours. Spectacular. Let's uh, or that word we use, scintillating. It's kind of like the technical term for light shining through things, isn't it? Now, we, some people say there's, there's a rainbow and it reminds us back of the promise God made to Noah, the God who judged, who promised not to judge by water again, by flood, his covenant with his people, which it's hard not to think of that. But notice this, this, uh, this rainbow is a little bit different. It looks like an emerald. It shines like an emerald. And so people have thought maybe it looks like it's a green rainbow with just different shades of green in it. Uh, that would be pretty cool to see. And I, don't, I actually wondered whether some people who are colorblind, is it possible that that's actually what they see when they see a normal rainbow to us? And so they're getting a little glimpse of this already? I don't know, speculating. Some people have tried to draw this and it just... John's, John's trying to describe it. And we know from the start that's a... It's a task he's kind of doomed to, to fail at, isn't he? In being able to capture it fully in words. And then someone's tried to turn the words into a picture. And if you look online, you get a couple of these. Here's one. Uh, and here's another one. I can't help but think they kind of fall flat at capturing the grandeur and glory of a heavenly throne. You can see the green rainbow there coming from around the throne. Here's another one. A bit cartoony, but... You get the idea. There's a rainbow around the throne and coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Uh, this is obviously a symbol of God's power, the lightning and thunder, um, but it also has connotations of judgment, doesn't it? And as we move outwards, we see more of the picture surrounding the throne, John says in verse 4, were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. These are obviously some important people in the throne room of God. Exactly who they are, they're not named. We're not told where they come from, but they're elders so they're representatives who have a leadership role in some capacity. And the number 24 reminds us, well, that there's kind of 12 tribes in Israel and 12 apostles in the New Testament. 
This is the comprehensive picture of leadership of all of God's people all together, the Israelites and the Gentiles, possibly. Though it doesn't say that explicitly here, does it? We can guess at who they are. But the key is that these thrones are around the central throne, aren't they? Despite their prominence as leaders or responsibilities they have, they are all focused and subservient to the the ultimate throne, the ultimate sovereign ruler, the one at the centre. What else is happening there? Well, in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Let's do the maths. Hang on. Father, Son, and Spirit, 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 Spirit. That's nine. That's not a trinity, is it? No. Uh, The seven is this number, isn't it, that, that represents fullness and perfection. We've seen it in creation. And we've seen it in the letters to the seven churches already in Revelation. We've seen this image of lamps even before in chapter 1. That there's a relationship God has through angels to these, these messengers, to these churches of lamps. And some suggest that it should be translated the sevenfold spirit of God more helpfully not trying to get you to conjure up images of a nonity. It's a trinity. This doesn't sound very good, does it? A nine-sided trinity. Uh, but the fullness of God's spirit there, represented not by a body, but by a flame, which reminds us of Pentecost, doesn't it? The coming of the spirit to God's people with tongues of flame resting on their heads. God's Spirit is present with him fully, sevenfold. Further on, what do we see in front of the throne? There's also what looks like a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. None of these pictures can capture that very well, can they? can kind of lightly see some type of space. This one's just got a kind of floor of glass. Same with this one. None of them captured the kind of idea that a sea of glass as clear as crystal. That makes me think of the waters of Jervis Bay, doesn't it? Like that kind of the spectacular. What's more heavenly than that? The aqua marine colour underneath, the sand visible through. You can see even to great depths through it because it's so clear. None of these capture that. And maybe that's not what John was going for anyway. He hadn't laid eyes on Jervis Bay. Um, But there's a sense of the sea is always uh, an image of chaos for the ancient peoples. It was, a, it was a power that was out of their control. And to see it here before the throne under God's authority, 
reminds us that God's power is absolute. Even the, the things that are most uncontrollable to man submit to him. And lastly, I think we read here in the throne room are these four creatures, whether they are flying around here or whether they are hovering or seated. You can see different attempts at them. They're fairly strange creatures, aren't they? They have four different heads of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. They all have wings. Six wings, and they are covered with eyes, even under their wings, even their armpits, their wings, covered in eyes. It's a quite a strange image, isn't it? It's hard to conjure up, not just kind of how it could possibly look, but why? Why have wings? Why have eyes under your wings? Well, uh, perhaps the eyes represent the visibility and seeing and understanding and wisdom, and these are these are creatures who know what's going on. Nothing's kind of hidden from them because they can see everywhere. Is that the sense we get? We get. And people try and pin different characteristics on the different uh, different uh, creatures because of the different heads, and say, or. The lion has majesty and the ox has strength and the man has intelligence, wisdom, those kind of things to try and break it down. But really, we're guessing, aren't we? The text doesn't tell us. John doesn't say that. The booming trumpet voice that spoke to him didn't say, this is what they mean. But this is just what he describes seeing. And even without being able to pin down all the details and know exactly who they are and, and what they're doing and, and why they're there and where they've come from, the, the overall sense is clear, isn't it? That this is impressive. This is the center of everything. This is time to update. Uh, this is beyond John's power to be able to articulate in a way that is comprehensive. And not because John was a poor wordsmith, but because he was human. See, our words will always fail to be able to describe the grandeur and glory of God. And even the, not God, even the bits that are around him, we struggle to comprehend and articulate. And the more we try, the more we just run up and start repeating ourselves, don't we? It's really, really, really pure. We compare it purer than anything else, more glorious than anything else, brighter than lightning, those kind of things we say. But... We can only compare him to other things that we know. 
And that's not always a good place to start. God stands above and beyond. He's different from anything else. The glory of the throne room is something that we we only can get the barest glimpse now, can't we? But we can, I think, with John, look forward to experiencing it more fully. And perhaps having some more of our curiosity soothed as we experience it ourselves and go, ah, oh, that's what that's what it was like. I can see now why John tried to tell us they have eyes all over them. Great and wonderful and spectacular. There's a sense in which reading this is disappointing, but kind of just helps us look forward to to getting the fuller picture, the fuller experience one day. But as we consider this text in the first week of Advent, it's the perfect time for us to remember that where we are limited to describe with our words, God is not limited in the ways that we are. God himself can reveal what he is like accurately. Even where we don't have the words to sum it up. How does he do it? John himself tells us in his gospel, the word became flesh. Not the human language word, the word who is the very self-revelation of God, the essence of what he is like and what he communicates. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who comes, came from the father full of grace and truth. A couple of verses later, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. If we want to see God, if we want to know what he looks like, if we want to appreciate his glory, like the heavenly throne room, doesn't translate well into English. But what does translate into human ability to understand? The person of God's Son. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If we want to see what God is like, if we want to understand his glory, we have to turn our eyes to the Son. The son who forever with the father had enjoyed the glory of heaven. But he chose to step down in humility to a manger throne, to frail flesh.
We sing about it sometimes, don't we? Wisdom unsearchable. God the invisible. Love indestructible. In frailty appears. Lord of infinity, stooping so tenderly, lifts our humanity to the heights of his throne. Or, if you enjoy poetry, John Donne's line from his poem, Nativity, Seest thou my soul with thy faith's eyes, how he, which fills all place, yet none holds him, doth lie. At Christmas, we see that just wonderful expression of God. God the Son lies as a baby in utter dependence and humiliation. He who with the Father and the Spirit is before all things, who created everything, fills all place, none can hold him. He lies in the form of a baby. Friends, we and we are lost for words. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at our uh, limitations as humans. But remember that God is not limited. When we're not sure how to describe what God is like, we need to keep coming back again and again to how God has shown us he is like. God is not just like Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is God. If you have seen him, you have seen the Father. So this Christmas especially, I pray that you would come and see him again and see him a bit more clearly and maybe still be lost for words and that's okay. But maybe be encouraged to keep coming, keep learning, keep appreciating, even as he lies in a manger. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your word to us in Revelation where John describes and we get a glimpse of your glory on the throne. We thank you for your revelation in Jesus that we get so much more. We see your glory in action. And please help us always, but especially this Christmas, to see him more clearly and to know more truly what you are like. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.